Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I got a little treat for y'all tonight. It's a man I knew as White Chocolate. Some might know him as Magic Mike. We're going to see if he still got some magic in that mic. That's Jada Pinkett Smith from Magic Mike XXL posing a question we're all asking now that the third and presumably final chapter in the Magic Mike trilogy has come to theaters. Does Channing Tatum's Mike Lane still have it? Mike, maybe his movie? (sighs) Our thoughts on Magic Mike's Last Dance, plus the top five Magic-est Mike moments from the trilogy. That and more. I see a lot of lawbreakers out there. Head on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. I don't know, Josh, is it safe to assume that Ant-Man Quantumania is, for the most part, a male stripper-free zone? Uh, Yes, from my recollection, I think so. Though there is one scene, now that you mention it, that references uh, um, part of the male anatomy quite a few times, more than I expected in the PG-13 mm. Ant-Man. I'll say that. Male strippers, though, no. I don't think there are any. You have seen Marvel's latest, which comes to theaters this weekend. I caught up with the latest from a recent Golden Brick nominee. We have both seen the new Magic Mike, and we will cover all later in the show. But first, we need to agree on some house rules as we get to our top five magic est. Mike moments. We talked about it a little bit previewing this on our last episode. What constitutes a magic, magic Mike moment? Are we only focusing on the dance sequences or any type of moment that involves some physicality, if you will? Or could it be anything else? Where did you land? Did you focus on just the dancing? I'm guessing you did. Yeah, I mean... We should say this is a joint list, so we're pretty much in agreement in the direction as to which way to go. And yeah, surprise, we didn't have the usual long Slack channel wrangling over definitions and what something could mean and where we needed to draw the lines. This was pretty clear, I think. Pretty straightforward. For both of us, yeah. We did want to focus on the dance scenes. We thought we could find five that we agreed on that represent this series among the three films. And we did agree. As you noted... We might change the order on this list if we were doing individual lists, but 
we're aligned on these five being our five favorite magic guest mic moments. And we are covering all three of the films here. We've got our bases covered. It's not all coming from XXL or the first installment, Magic Mike. Why don't you start us off, Josh? All right, I'm going to start us off with a comment from a listener who weighed in because we do want to be clear. We're in appreciation. This is not a very tongue-in-cheek top five, and there are probably others who appreciate these movies even more than us, though. So I did want to mention a note I got from Nicholas Pineda on my Larson on Film Facebook page. He said, and he's talking about the first two here, it's in my top 100. I'm not sure if he's referring to the original or XXL, but one of those films is in Nicholas's top 100. And then he said, it's a fascinating exploration of post-Great Recession manhood and toxic friendships in the first film, then positive friendships that we should all aspire to and women's pleasures in the second one. So well said. there are some hardcore fans out there, even more so than us, I think. And yeah, Nicholas represents them well with that reasoning. But let's get to those dance scenes. Let's get to what I think we agree are the highlights of these three films. And we're going to start with one from the most recent film, Magic Mike's Last Dance. We'll get into how we feel about the movie overall in a little bit later in the show. But you came out of this one, Adam, and I think fairly quickly just dropped in slack that there was a pretty clear choice for you for as sure. to what should go on this list. I'm with you. It's at the very beginning of the film. Let's call it the $6,000 dance. That is the amount of money that Salma Hayek Pinot's Maxandra Mendoza offers to Mike. He, at this point, is working as bartender for her at a benefit at her massive mansion. She's a obscenely wealthy former stage actress who is holding this benefit. Mike's business, the furniture business, we've all been rooting for. He's just had some more bad luck, another economic downturn, so now he's bartending on the side. She learns from another guest. He used to dance, and she's going through some stuff. So she offers him the money for a private session that, you know, it's it's erotic, but I think cathartic as well um, is what ensues. And I do think Soderbergh here, Steven Soderbergh, returning as director, he tiptoes toward the edge of silliness. There's humor in this. I love how before Mike starts, he tests the strength of Max's metal bookcases to see, you know, if they're going to be able to withstand what right. he has planned. But I also think that Soderbergh, who is serving as cinematographer and editor as well, he evades silliness by then dazzling us with cinematic dexterity that we come to expect from him that matches Mike's moves. We've got this long single take that the sequence begins with, kind of roaming about the room, giving us a sense of the space and kind of building up the suspense. But then he breaks into a series of shots that are almost almost abstract in the angles he gives us. At one point, the whole screen is tilted, so we see them, the image of two of them on the side. So it's very formally inventive, and the other element that I liked about it, Adam, before I throw it back to you, is how Hayek Pinot becomes a participant in this dance. She's not just a prop, which is often how the dance moves work in these movies. Here, she gets a little involved, and I think that reflects the chemistry between the two actors, but also the fact that, you know, as, as a former stage performer... Max is being creatively energized as well by this experience. At least that's that's what I got from this scene. What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. I need you beside me. But then you came along 
and gave me this unexpected, magical moment that made me remember who I really was. I walked into this despite my appreciation for Soderbergh as a filmmaker, and I will invariably give him the benefit of the doubt. I was a little skeptical. I wondered what I was doing here. Is there any magic left? And within the first 10 minutes or so, we get this scene. And I thought, okay, we might be in for something. And I saw this, Josh, speaking to your point. It's definitely cathartic. She's definitely looking to let off some steam, but it's definitely erotic too. And I saw this on a Friday afternoon, maybe five to seven people at the multiplex, a lot of open space, but there was a woman, I don't know how old she was or really anything about her, but I saw her when I walked in, she was sitting just like three seats away from me. And this scene gets sensual enough that I had that moment of feeling a little bit of discomfort. You know, I got a little uncomfortable. Like, should we be, should we be watching this together in public? Is this something we should be doing at home? That's how, that's how private this felt. And that's all a credit to those performers and to Soderbergh and how this is staged and how it's all brought to life. It is overtly and explicitly sexual. And you mentioned she gets involved, but as I recall, until the final payoff, there aren't really any sexual acts occurring. Even when they're really touching each other, they're not directly kissing or directly touching certain body parts. And it really is about how fully both these people and these performers commit. And that's going to be a common theme for me with this top five. So did you and the that woman kind of exchange a sideways glance? Like I just, a, or did I just, you just stared straight ahead. Straight ahead. It's like, you might as well have been in that theater with your parents, huh? Yeah, that's kind of how it felt. And again, I, I think that's a good thing. I think we should be having those types of moments at the movie theater. And we should certainly be having those types of moments when we're watching a Magic Mike film. My number four, I had to go off the beaten path a little bit, Josh. It's when Mike fails to get a bank loan in Magic Mike 1. It's a great scene. I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm kidding. If we weren't doing all dance, that would be one. I'm actually going with the scene that was my pick for funniest moment at our 2015 film spotting rap party. A sequence devised by Channing Tatum and the writer Reed Carolyn. But it really is incredible here again because of the only two performers in the scene. And the key word again is commitment for both of them. It's make her smile. I want it that way for Magic Mike XXL. Joe Manganello as Richie. This is a family show, so I'll have to leave his Christian name out, Josh. Save that for Ant-Man <laughs> and Quantumania. Right. There are no hordes of screaming women. There are no cheers coming his way. Just him, the Backstreet Boys, and the woman behind the Minimart counter who does not care about him at all, which, of course, just compels him to commit even harder. The setup or the context for this scene is he's being challenged, Richie's being challenged by his buddies to let loose a little himself and go outside his comfort zone, and they dare him, essentially, to try to get a smile from this cashier, who's played by Lindsay Moser, her first appearance in a feature film, according to IMDb. I'm sure our friend Mitchell Beaupre, though, recognized her. She's the wrestling coach recently in Lyle Lyle Crocodile. So she has had some other appearances since then. But her stone face 
the reaction shots are comedic gold. We're going to have another scene coming up here in a moment where the reaction shots help really make the scene beyond what's happening with the dancing. It's just so good. The best touch is when he goes down to the floor and we get the cut of her leaning over. (laughs) She has betrayed no sense of enjoyment at all up to this point, but you know that he's definitely piqued her curiosity. And I found an interview with Manganiello from around the time this came out. And speaking of Moser, he said, my God, that girl was genius. And she's not that way in real life either. She's super fun and super cool. Then they turned on the camera and she was down to business. And just that little crack of a smile at the end, phenomenal. for the cheetahs and water. I mentioned that this was a joint list, so maybe there was a little bit of compromising and maneuvering. This very well could be my number two favorite Magic Mike moment, and I'll just throw out that in that interview I found with Meganello, he mentions that he envisioned Richie as a closet Backstreet Boys fan. He felt that part of his backstory was that he would know the full-on choreography for that song and probably even practiced it. And you can sit here, anybody listening, you can tell me to my face that you hate boy bands, you hate the Backstreet Boys, whatever. If you say you hate, I want it that way, you're lying, period. Strong support coming from Adam Kempinar for I want it that way. He's drawn a line in the sand. I like it. I also like that you pick this as the funniest moment because this is probably the moment in all three films where this series fully leans into the comedic potential, yeah. right? So I laugh every time I watched it. I watched hilarious. it three times a day. I kept laughing. So many of the scenes could go full tilt that way, right? But this is the one where they really indulge in it, yet still they're not degrading any of the actors involved. I mean, Mag- Maganello is having as much fun as anyone in this scene. And yeah, you talk about Moser, Lindsay Moser, and that straight face. I found an interview with her. I think this was in People magazine from 2015 and she talked about how yeah they had to do a lot of takes and a lot of it was because of her not being able to keep that straight face up but then she said here's how i finally nailed it they had me just kind of text someone on the phone like i was talking to my girlfriend so i just kind of made up this big story in my head that my girlfriend was sleeping with my boyfriend and then i was super pissed about that so there you go acting with acting we now know the secret of that hilarious, hilarious scene. I, I love it. Yeah, you just watch it independently. It's one of those things you don't need to know anything about the movie, really, and still you'd enjoy it. But going back to the top and Nicholas Pineda's point about the positive friendships and the male camaraderie that is captured mm-hmm. in XXL, this scene also speaks to that. Well, now you know why in a future edition of Massacre Theater, maybe even on this show, I'm on my phone. I'm just channeling Lindsay Moser. Applying her technique, Okay, Josh. I'll keep that in mind if I see you doing that. <laughs> Our number three Magic-est Mike moment is from Magic Mike. And I think I'm up again on this one, though. I really can't wait to hear your thoughts, Josh, because even though I don't think I've ever had the pleasure of seeing you dance before, you have more opinions about what good on-screen dancing is than anybody I know. I know so, when I see it. Yeah, I, I really want the breakdown here. But when you think about Magic Mike, If you just went to 100 people who have seen at least two of these films and said, when you think about Magic Mike, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A good percentage of them are going to say one word. They're going to say pony. Magic Mike's signature solo. For starters, 
just like I want it that way? This song is a jam. That helps. Then you've got Tatum's moves, which are electric. And in this scene, all of Soderbergh's instincts from a framing and editing standpoint are dead on. This is about 45 minutes into Magic Mike. I think I'm right. I didn't watch the whole thing again. I kind of watched fast forwarding to get a sense. I think we've definitely seen Mike dance at this point. We know he's got moves. We know he's good. But I don't think we've seen him perform a solo yet until we get this dance. And structurally, it's so perfect because it's the moment where we see Mike then in full bloom. We see just how talented he is. And we really get a sense of him as an artist, pink, pink thong or not. And this intersects with, this moment intersects with his eventual love interest, Cody Horn's Brooke, coming into the club to see what her brother's up to, the kid, and getting her first exposure to Mike. So these things are colliding, and she is, I think, sort of our stand-in here. She's skeptical of this way of life. She's definitely pretty jaded and cynical. She's really not sure she's buying any of this nonsense. And as good as the dancing is, I mentioned it just a minute ago, what makes this scene really is the cross-cutting to her reaction <laughs> Like the Minimark clerk, she seems at best unmoved, at worst, totally disapproving. But there's some good acting here. Horn betrays enough of something. There's some, I don't more, know. There's some other things going on I as don't know well. exactly what it is. We could speculate. We could throw out some different adjectives and probably come up with 10 or 20 of them. She very well could be disapproving, but she's also not looking away, is she? Uh-huh. <laughs> he has definitely got her full attention. And I even felt, maybe this is a Kuleshov thing, maybe I'm, I'm transferring here, but there's even a bit of jealousy when he starts interacting with the crowd, even though at this point she has no claim to him whatsoever. And the way it's all shot, there's something about that separation, how she's completely separated from the rest of the audience. It heightens this sense of opposition there. And the reaction shots become tighter and more frequent in keeping with the tempo of Mike's gyrations with those women in the crowd. Part of it too, Josh, just could be that she thinks she's better than them, that this is vulgar. She's above this whole show. These women, she's better than her brother. She's better than Mike. Remember at the beginning of the scene, she mocks him about being, is it a stripper, entrepreneur, or an entrepreneur stripper? But I think in this sequence, he is really challenging her <laughs> with his sexiness, with his creativity, and mainly I think his confidence, and also how much fun, to go back to what you were saying about Manganello how much fun he's having on stage. Every time we have seen her up to this point, she seems to be in a scolding type of mood. She doesn't seem to really enjoy her job. She's trying to make ends meet. She seems chronically miserable. And so when she comes upon a guy like Magic Mike doing something that brilliant from the stage, among other things or among other feelings it may elicit, I think it does challenge her in some interesting ways. Well, first of all, I'm insulted. We were on the dance floor together at Tyler Green's wedding. You know, mm. Tyler, who's helped us with uh, some of our live shows in the past. And 
Uh, you don't remember that? That probably says more about my dancing, I guess. So maybe I should move on. <laughs> I don't think I could see you from my seat in the back since I'm not sure I got up. Uh, I think you were a little closer. There was also like a, a Chinese dragon going That's through true. the dance floor. So it was a, there was a lot going on. So I can understand if you forgot. But yeah, I'm glad you, you highlighted Cody Horn here. I really like her in Magic Mike. I, yeah. I, I know there are some people who just don't kind of get on her wavelength, but... I think there is that reticence, but also playfulness. She doesn't shut Mike down completely, even as she's disapproving. You know there is something there. And this is the crucial scene where it becomes clear that, yes, underneath the disapproving and the scowling and whatever else we see on that face, there's something. There's a tremor. There's a tremor Mm -hmm. going on in her face as well. So I've lost track of her, honestly, since then, but I do think she has a nice, unique presence uh, and plays well against Tatum in the film. But as for the dancing, I mean, it's just, this is what jumped out at me with Tatum going all the way back to 2006's Step Up, which three out of four stars on the record as a fan of that film. He has this um, precision that you need, but he has a fluidity as well. Yeah, that's the and, word. and there's... Mm-hmm. So somehow there's a sense of complete control of every move, but also a recklessness. And I think all the numbers we see him perform, and and maybe those qualities, you know, the gauges shift a little bit. Maybe in some numbers, the control is dialed up a little bit more. And then others, there's, there's more recklessness at play. But it's always an intriguing balance of those two things with Tatum. And then you mentioned the other thing, just a complete sense of fun. I think we're going to get to one, the next pick, actually. Um, where is maybe one where there isn't a lot of joy in it for reasons I'll get to, but really 90% of the time when Tatum is performing some sort of dance sequence, you can feel the joy and the enthusiasm for the performance as well. So you combine all that. I, I do think he's one of the most exciting people to watch in a dance scene on screen nowadays. We're going to take a quick break from this top five to towel off all of our picks, including The ability to click and watch these scenes is at filmspotting.net slash lists. First, we want to say a word of thanks to everyone who gave us a rating or a review over the last week. These do really help spread word of mouth about the show. Your word of mouth recommendations are great, but also the reviews that you give, they introduce us to new listeners. So we want to thank in particular these folks who did leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stool at the End, Kay Morrison, and Shane Sanford. I particularly appreciated Stool at the end's little jab at his friend Aviv in the Apple comments. Share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Who are you? I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. That's from the trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which opens in wide release this weekend. Josh, I feel like the only question I should ask you coming out of that clip is, would you make a deal with Jonathan Majors, King the Conqueror, if it meant getting your 125 minutes back? Well, one thing you know after watching this movie, Adam, you do not make a deal with Kang. So I'm not, I'm not going to even get involved with that. I, I don't think you will end up seeing this movie, but it's the Jonathan Majors performance that I would be most curious to get your opinion on because... It's the only reason why I'd go. Yeah, there's and, and there's a lot going on there. I think I swung from, I love this, so glad I'm here, to, oh, 
boy, what is he doing to, you know, maybe this could still work all within the course of, you know, the last 45 minutes or so. Um, what can I tell you about Ant-Man and the Wasp? It's my favorite Ant-Man movie, but it's also the Ant-Man movies are among the ones I've liked the least. So I don't know if that's helpful. I look Wait, at my MCU. Quantum Mania? Quantum Mania is your favorite of the three. My favorite of the three. I, okay. I will say that, but I'm really low on the other two, probably lower than most people. That said, Quantumania, I've got it at 16 right now out of 31 MCU movies. So that's not giving it a ton of credit either. I'm overall positive on it, I'll say, because world building, listeners know, is something that I do appreciate. And this movie has a ton of that that I think it does really well. It's clear. Most of this is quite bright. You can see. <laughs> And because it takes the bar place, is so low, you know, it, an MCU <laughs> movie that you can see, uh huh, that that's automatically a positive rating, right? But there is a lot of creativity going on here. It's all taking place in this quantum realm. So this is this subatomic world, and it is stuffed with enough creatures and landscapes to fill a couple of Star Wars movies, a, a Dune picture as well. There's a lot going on. There's a. It opens early on. You see a slug horse. And I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much in on this. If there's a slug horse, that's going to take me quite a ways. And you got Paul Rudd, charming as ever. The Fountain of Charm has not emptied yet, but I'm sure no one is shocked to hear this. It gets bigger. It gets louder. There are more battles as it goes on. And I honestly don't know what to make of Jonathan Major's Kang the Conqueror. And I don't think this is a spoiler the trailer seems to suggest this, but this is a character who is going to be around a bit. And so I'm kind of at a point where I'm going to give him some time to see what he does with it. He has a very quiet presence at first that I really liked. It it gives a sense to this character that there's um, behind his wanting to dominate worlds is a lot of hurt and a lot of weariness. And he seems to carry that as a curse. And you can probably imagine... Knowing majors from The Last Black Man in San Francisco, you can picture those sorts of levels at work in a performance, right? But he also has, you know, there is this violent rage that opens up. We're never quite clear what his powers are or the extent of them. He's, I guess, like this nuclear Darth Vader. He has a lot of Darth Vader moves, but he's even more powerful. So that's sort of frustrating. And then some of the thoughtful pauses that he gives begin to seem a little bit mannered as it goes on. So I don't know if I don't have a handle on this character yet, or if he doesn't, we'll see where it goes. You know, if you're an MCU fan, I would say it's worth checking out. If you're not at all, and you've been checking out more and more over the last couple of years, I would skip it. That's, that's kind of the advice I would give. Hmm. Well, that's where I already was. And Slug horses definitely prompt the opposite response from me. So there's that. And then I'm not saying I particularly loved either of the two Ant-Man movies, but I probably have them higher than 16. I think maybe I was three stars on the first one, two and a half on the other, which means, again, I'll probably be opposite of you, Josh, and hate this one even more if I ever do see it. I think you will because it's different from those in terms of its scope and its expansiveness. You know, mm -hmm. the, those were relatively small scale for MCU movies, and this is quite a bit bigger. If I did go see it, it would be because of majors. And if you can't make big choices as a villain in a Marvel movie, then 
why are you taking the role? Sure. And he does. it. It definitely goes that direction. Follow up, Josh, just recapping where we're at here with the MCU since Endgame. Do you know how many MCU installments we've had? Since Endgame, 23? I don't know. <laughs> it feels like 23. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's actually only eight. I'll give you $8 if you can name all eight of them. Oh, gosh. Since Endgame. Um, well, I know Shang-Chi. There's been two yeah. Spider-Men. Um, yeah. yeah. Was uh, Captain Marvel? Is that? Yeah, you, you can't cheat and look at the notes here. No, I'm not. I'm honestly not. Um Captain Marvel, what else? What else? What else? There's been a Thor. There's Thor. We did Thor. Yeah. Um, goats. Thor screaming goats. Um oh gosh. Slug horses and goats. That's yeah. what Josh needs from the MCU. Yep. I'm out. I honestly I'm out. You're out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Captain Marvel isn't on the list. Oh boy. Must have come out before Endgame. I think that probably does make sense chronology-wise. But you're right. Two Spider-Mans, Shang-Chi, Black Widow, Eternals. Thor, Love and Thunder, you mentioned. You didn't mention Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah, the the, uh, the Sam Raimi. Okay. Or Wakanda Forever, most recently. Uh, duh. <laughs> the, the, the one, it's because I couldn't see it. That's why I couldn't remember it. Yeah, it was, exactly. The it cinematography goes, was so, yeah. It goes nicely with your point here about actually being able to see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I did not see the new Ant-Man, but I suppose I was trying to live up to my Art House Adam moniker. I did catch up with... The Integrity of Joseph Chambers, the latest from director Robert Machoyan, whose previous film, The Killing of Two Lovers, was a Golden Brick nominee here on Film Spotting in 2021. It was also my number seven film of that year. The Joseph Chambers of the title is played by Clayne Crawford, who also played the lead in Two Lovers. Chambers is a family man and life insurance salesman who starts to feel like maybe he needs to be a little more prepared to protect his family in these uncertain, chaotic times. He sets out one morning on a solo hunting trip, despite some warnings and despite having very little experience handling a weapon, you guessed it, things, they don't go so well, Josh. And the two films, Joseph Chambers and Two Lovers, share a lot more than a star and similar sounding titles. They're very much character studies about a husband and father who really just wants to protect his family. And Two Lovers, that means trying to maintain the family unit as it's fracturing. Here it means being able to physically provide for and defend your family in a potential worst-case scenario. Yes, guns also feature prominently in both. Sam, our producer earlier today, asked me if the take shelter vibes were accurate, and I get that, but not, not really, because the idea that Joseph thinks the apocalypse is imminent or something like that is never really expressed, not in so many words, but he is scared and he does feel inadequate as this white collar guy who, when he wakes up, this is the beginning of the film. When he wakes up to go hunting, he's literally playing a part. Machoyan begins the movie with Crawford imitating Clint Eastwood in front of his mirror as he's shaving and what he's doing. I think he's getting rid of his beard and he's actually forming a mustache a mustache that we maybe don't picture Clint Eastwood with, but we could certainly picture a macho gunslinger with. That's what he's trying to do. He's got all the right clothes. He's got the boots. He's got the accessories, but he isn't actually that man's man. He's inauthentic and he's aware of it. 
And as a guy who sometimes wishes he was a little more rugged than he is, I could definitely relate to that. There's enough ominous foreshadowing that some of what unfolds is predictable. There are other films like this that will be touchstones for a lot of viewers where characters make mistakes and then seem to compound those mistakes. You could probably name them just off that description alone. A simple plan, one that not many people saw, but we actually talked about here on the show with Sam Rockwell in 2013, a single shot would be another. But what I appreciate about this film is that it's definitely not a genre exercise and Machoyan and Crawford do take it to some surprising places. The movies also share a director of photography, Oscar Ignacio Jimenez. They both feature some bold visual choices, reliance on long takes, which lend this kind of very slow burning suspense. It's the same aspect ratio, four by three. So it focuses you on this man and his choices and what he's processing on this hunting trip, not the landscapes on the hunting trip. And what I think you'll probably be most intrigued about, Josh, I think a lot of viewers will be when they see it, is the sound design. The sound design might really be the star here. And I don't remember if this was a key element or not of the killing of two lovers. It's not something I had in my notes. But as he's out on this trip, he's out on this land, as you would imagine, there's a lot of noise. There are birds, there's other animals, there's the wind, there are trees and the trees he's stepping on, the branches that he's trying to make his way through. You name it, all of these elements feature really prominently in the mix. And then you have the score by William Ryan Fritch, where sometimes you can't tell where one begins and the other ends. The whole point, this was I could take care of my family. My wife didn't even want me to come out here today. I'm just saying, it seems like the whole world's falling apart. Come on, John. This thing's happened. Huh? He's trespassing. You're doing what's right. You did the right thing, John. You have to tell me what happened. Machoin and his sound designer, Peter Albrechtson, they layered those natural sounds with occasional bursts of seemingly unnatural ones, mirroring... Joseph's increasingly unbalanced psyche and maximizing tension. I definitely think it's worth seeing, especially if, like me, you were a fan of The Killing of Two Lovers. It's out now this weekend in limited release, and you can see it VOD. That makes sense that the sound design would be integral to what's going on here, because that's what I remember about The Killing of Two Lovers, among mm -hmm. other good things about it. But yeah, the main character there, it seemed like, who was also a man somewhat on edge, it seemed like um, what was going on, I think I compared it to the rumble of earth moving equipment that would increase as he seemed, as this character seemed closer towards some sort of angry action, mm -hmm. even if he was trying to keep that at bay. So yes, in terms of not only giving you a sense of place, but also the inner mindset of a character, the sound design was crucial there as well. So yeah, sounds like one that I should definitely catch up with. Yeah, that's another way the films diverge. The Killing of Two Lovers is a movie that starts with this man already in a very disturbed, desperate state. And this is a film where he begins as a man who is as put together as maybe he can be, who certainly projects that image of himself and becomes increasingly unhinged as the movie goes along. If you see 
Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, or the integrity of Joseph Chambers and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Speaking of feedback, we're hearing everyone loud and clear in the comments section of the latest film spotting poll. It is unanimous as it usually is. This poll is deeply flawed. Oh boy. I always agree on that. The poll is deeply flawed though. I haven't read the comments yet. Sam has, I haven't. We'll see where I'm at next week when we share the poll results right now, I'm going to be a little combative and I'm going to say, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. If people really do think this question is flawed, we ask them simply to name the best film of 1973. And there are a ton of great options as we look to celebrate that 50th anniversary of that movie year next week on the show. We only gave you three options. We said, is it Malik's Badlands? Is it William Friedkin's The Exorcist? Or is it Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye? Knowing that probably wouldn't cover it. We let people go with other and they could write in their choice. I just don't believe people, Josh, if they're saying that they think The Wicker Man or The Sting is better than those films. I don't. Well, The Sting is the one Sam highlighted in the newsletter email mm-hmm. that went out to film spotting family members A today. A fine film. A so, fine film. which is, that's the, and because he highlighted it as one that most people have mentioned, I think that's the next one I'm going to catch up with, actually. I mean, I've. You haven't seen The Sting. I have not seen The Sting. And so, for a variety of reasons, I've wanted to, but now it kind of bumped it up to the homework list or bumped it up on the homework list. I mean, if that's what most people are saying in other, then that's, you know, maybe maybe the poll was flawed not to include it. Okay. We will see. We will reckon with all of that next week on the show. You can still vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. You've been doing some very serious 1973 homework, and now we're adding the sting to the list, the best picture winner of that movie year. How are you going to make room for all these new watches on your top five. There's only five slots, Josh. I know. I know. It's it's really, and I'm trying to think, I won't say it here, but if any one title, there's been at least one title that has shaken up what that list looked like beforehand. So in that case, yeah, all this exercise, all this homework will have been worth it. Plus, I've been able to catch a lot of great films the last couple of weeks. There you go. That is the purpose of all of the folly we do here on Film Spotting. Anyway, top five lists, poll questions, madness, all included. I did want to share a quick note for our Chicago area listeners, Josh. The University of Chicago's Film Studies Center is hosting the Sojourner Truth Festival of the Arts this year. It commemorates a festival of the same name that was held in 1976, and it is a nine-week screening series. There's two weeks left in it. That's why I'm pointing it out now. There's still two Thursdays ahead for people to check out some of these films. It's held in conjunction with Professor Allison Nadia Fields' winter 2023 course at the University of Chicago called Black Women's Filmmaking of the 1970s. These screenings are free and open to the public as part of the Film Studies Center's Open Classroom series. And at the conclusion of it, after that last screening on Thursday, March 2nd, there's a two-day symposium that's going to feature roundtable conversations with some of the original festival participants back in 1976, contemporary filmmakers. They're going to all weigh in and reflect on the past and the future of black women's filmmaking. I had a chance to talk this week with Haley O'Malley from the University of Iowa, a professor there who is one of the co-programmers of this series and talking about some of these films. Like on Thursday, February 23rd, the heading, if you will, for these films is social engagement. And you look at a movie like a documentary from 1975 that 
is a portrait of men and women struggling with drug addiction in Philadelphia from a black woman filmmaker named Edie Lynch. 1989, a film called Flag, where Linda Gibson uses montage and superimpositions to address questions of racism. Lots of fascinating sounding work being highlighted. And finally, getting the exposure it deserves at this festival. I wanted to make sure our local listeners were aware of it, especially with a couple weeks left in the series and then that two-day symposium ahead. If you would like more information and want to participate, voices.uchicago.edu slash sojourner. We will also link to that in the show notes at filmspotting.net. We also wanted to give you a quick heads up about the latest pairing going on over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. New Hope is what they've called this pair. Previously, they looked at Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, and this week they're turning their attention to the HBO limited series, The Last of Us, which stars Pedro Pascal. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, and you can get new episodes every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. More information is also available at nextpictureshow.net. Now it's time for some Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, we massacred this scene. Mordecai, baby, what's happening? How's the weather up top? The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Well, you're, you're doing a great job out there. By the numbers, man, you gotta start it off just right. So we'll talk to you later, okay? Their blind eyes see nothing of the horrors to come. Their ears are stopped. They are the gods, fools. Well, that's how it works. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Bathe them in the crimson of... Am I on speakerphone? That was Tim DeZarn as Mordecai with Bradley Whitford in The Cabin in the Woods, written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard and directed by Goddard. A couple of weeks ago, along with that massacre, we shared our top five M. Night Shyamalan moments, along with a review of Knock at the Cabin. So in addition to the word cabin, <laughs> yeah. why did we choose that scene from Cabin in the Woods? That might be all we got. Jeremy Weigel from Queen says, in addition to the obvious connection of place, cabins in the woods, the selection is also consistent with the idea of horrifying bizarre rituals designed to avert the end of the world. Indeed, you're right, Jeremy. It also has a Marvel connection, Dave Batista and Chris Hemsworth. Indeed. Are you on board with all this very, very early Dave Bautista for best actor at the 2024 Oscars talk I've seen, Adam? Let's let's not go too far. <laughs> all right. We also heard from Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York. Besides the obvious cabin locations, an additional connection is the great Sigourney Weaver, a Shyamalan veteran from the village who is pulling the strings in the slash horror deconstruction, the cabin in the woods. Sigourney Weaver also co-starred in Ghostbusters, as did cabin lead Chris Hemsworth, albeit in two completely different versions of the film. I think you may have pointed this out. Sam caught that. Or was it Sam? I totally forgot Sigourney Weaver was in the village, but yeah, Sam made that connection. Neil from San Francisco writes, as a listener of two-ish years to this podcast, I'm very excited to be writing in for the very first Massacre Theater that I immediately recognize. Cabin in the Woods premiered the same year that I graduated high school, and I remember it being one of the first films that I just had to show to my friends. Horror had always been a genre of interest to me, and having grown up watching the horror classics of the 80s and 90s with my dad at too young of an age, I was immediately able to get and enjoy all the references and parodies in this movie. Furthermore, I had not seen comedy crossed with horror with such success until this movie. It was an exhilarating take on how successful the genres could be when done right. Loved your performances here, and I'm looking forward to more film spotting in 2023. Well, belated welcome, Neil. Glad you could enter in this one. 
One more note. It comes from Anthony Servo in Winter Park, Florida. Adam was right to shirk Josh's advice. His performance is what wriggled that memory off the shelf. Yeah. There you what go. What was your advice again? What was your direction? You wanted me to channel. We were talking about like, weren't we talking about being stern fathers yeah, or something maybe. like that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, instead, I just went full on creep <laughs> <laughs> as as low voiced creepy as I could get. And it Anthony wasn't alone. Got some positive feedback on that performance. At least we know I can play British women and (laughs) baritone male creeps. I mean, two sides of the same coin, really. There you go. Reach in to the pretty brimming film spotting hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Luke Stanaway in Los Angeles by way of Jackson, Michigan. Congratulations, Luke. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt or tote bag. You are that dreamboat guy that never came along. You are the one-night stand that they get to have tonight with you on stage and not get in trouble because you, baby, you made it legal. You are the liberation. Own it. Well, following that, the world's going to be shocked to find what role I'm playing (laughs) in this scene. I've been waiting to confront you like this for years. (laughs) Will you be doing it in a British accent or a Scottish accent? I refuse to answer on the grounds that it may <laughs> that it may incriminate me, Josh. What, whatever response we get, that's the accent you were doing, right? That's right. Okay. So as I look at the scene, actually all the confrontation, the accusations really lead in to where we're going to start. I don't think people are going to have a hard time imagining why we chose this scene, but we always look forward to the connections that we did not think of. So a challenge this time. Indeed. Yeah. I think there there could be a few, a few hidden in here in, the, in this dialogue, in the films, in our performances, I'm sure. You started off, you're coming in hot. Yeah. You need to get yourself ready. Okay. You need to get fired up, Josh. And action. Listen, will ya? It's not to do with any of the women, all right? I'm, I'm a stripper, right? Me and guys and some fellas thought we could nick a bob or two out of taking his clothes off. Strippers? All right. All right. I know. You and Gaz, strippers. We weren't that bad. Only I could, could I? Why not? Well, look at me. So? Who wants to see this dance? Nay, I do. And (laughs) scene. (laughs) Wait, who wants to see? This day May. May, your friend May, May or you? May. May. <laughs> and we've come full circle. I started out talking about wanting to see you dance, Josh. Oh. Symmetry. Look Symmetry at Symmetry with Massacre Theater. It all comes together. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, February 27th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I think we just changed the entire meaning of that scene. <laughs> Probably. So Why are you in London? I'm going to put on a show at this famous theater. People are numb, disconnected. We're going to wake them up with a wave of passion they've never felt before. Hell yeah. Without further ado, I give you the visionary artist magic mind. So. That's Salma Hayek Pano and Channing Tatum in the trailer for Magic Mike's Last Dance. We're going to get to our final two. Oh, this is the first time I get to say this. Magicist 
Mm. Magic Est, Mike Moments, okay, from the trilogy in just a bit. But first, we wanted to spend a couple of minutes on the new film. Like the first entry in the trilogy, this one is directed by Steven Soderbergh, though Soderbergh did shoot and edit the second film in the series, XXL. Adam, real quick, where do we stand on the first two? Do you have a clear preference, Magic Mike over Magic Mike XXL? I don't have a clear preference. Do you? I really rate them, I think, the same. I think of them the same. I have a Soderbergh-ranked list over at Letterboxd, and I think Magic Mike was always ahead of XXL, but maybe only because I tend to give preference to the first in a series. But then just recently, I might have actually bumped XXL ahead of it, probably because of that I want it that way scene. So I can't make up my mind. What about you? Yeah, they're pretty close for me, but I feel like they're distinct in what they're trying to do enough that I put Magic Mike a little bit further ahead. I think there are a few more things on its mind, which I find interesting, in addition to all the great dancing. And so maybe that's why I put it a little bit ahead of XXL, but it's it's close. I, I enjoy them both. Sam put out a Twitter poll asking this very question, and XXL actually came out ahead with 61% of the vote, so a little more decisive there. Magic Mike, 35%, and then I don't know how many people had a chance to see it yet, but Last Dance, only 4% of the vote there. Now, Last Dance opens with Mike slumming as a bartender. He lost the furniture business. We see him start in the first film. He's at a catering gig, meets Hayek's wealthy socialite, Maxandra Mendoza, and yeah, she learns about his previous talents, offers him 6000 bucks to come out of retirement. After that, things really kick into gear. She's so impressed, she invites him to London to stage a Magic Mike theatrical experience. Now, Adam Tatum's Mike Lane has had a complicated relationship with his gifts since the first film. He wants to get out. He does get out. He's pulled back in. He gets pulled back in again. This, you could say, mirrors Soderbergh's own complicated relationship with the film industry. So, does the trilogy, specifically maybe, does Last Dance have anything meaningful to say about what it means to work in an industry that can be rewarding but is also exploitative and soul-crushing. Are we digging too deep here, Adam, <laughs> yeah, in Magic yeah, just, Mike's just Last go Dance? Ahead and stop. Go ahead and stop. No, it, it doesn't have anything meaningful to say about anything, and that's fine. I don't necessarily come to a Magic Mike movie expecting that, even though, as you rightfully pointed out, there are elements of that in the first film. There's commentary about the economy, about healthcare, about opportunity and who gets those opportunities that movie does to borrow your phrase have a little bit more on its mind i think than xxl does or certainly this film does but again that's not what i'm holding against this movie one of the things i appreciate most about soderbergh is his ingenuity he's sort of the macgyver of movie making for me it's like i've got an actor a camera a few lights a matchbook chicken wire and some duct tape okay, here's something that's at least really interesting to look at. But even he can't make this no-stake show go. It's just the story here for me that is so lacking. It's not even that it's absurd. It's not that. It's really just the absence of a story, really, Josh. What are we invested in here? Whether or not the show will actually be performed They try to drum up some tension and suspense there. Whether Mike's creative vision will ever be realized, none of it 
actually feels like the movie <laughs> cares at all about that. The roadblocks the screenplay concocts are so silly and so easily resolved that it's impossible to feel any dramatic tension there. And then that coincides with what I think the movie, by the end, suggests it really wants us to care about, which is whether Mike and Maxandra end up together. Can he help her be free? Can he help her assert her independence, take this leap? Can they, can they be a couple? Except until a character, one of those two characters, says that what they're feeling is love, I didn't feel it for a second. After that incredible $6,000 dance, I think they're both fine performers. I don't think either of them are giving a lacking performance. I think the story is so inept that I didn't feel any of that sexual attention, any of that chemistry from that opening scene. It just all dissipates from there as they get caught up in the machinations of producing a show. And again, I'm not saying that every interaction between them feels flat. I'm just saying that without anything at stake, those interactions for me didn't have any fire to them. Yeah, I think I would agree with you in terms of the story, absolutely. And we should note that Reed Carolyn wrote the script as he did for the previous two films. The distinction I would make is I was never invested in them as a romance, a deep, lasting romance. And you're right. I think the movie wants us to mm -hmm. at the end. That doesn't quite work. But I think where I would differ is that I don't think that chemistry ever dipped. And if that's the case, with Soderbergh working at the level that he is here, that we talked about when we mentioned the $6,000 dance scene and how he is making every scene interesting to look at or interestingly put together, that was plenty for me. I, I realized early on, you know, remembered that, oh yeah, George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, out of sight, you know, just... To your point, stick them in a trunk and Soderbergh knows how to shoot them. Granted, better dialogue there, right? So it's a much better film. Not saying Last Dance is at all in that league, but it is a good film because it's working on the same vibe, for me at least. And I give credit not only to Soderbergh, but to the two performers here. I think they're just excellent together. I think they're so at ease in each other's company. That same joy that Tatum brings to the dance performances I was talking about, I think they both have in their interactions together, which is there's a meta joy at work. There's a character joy. Maybe here's the difference is there's a character joy that I bought into maybe a little bit more than you, though not as much more. as the movie asks me to, mm -hmm. but there was also, I felt a meta joy radiating from the screen, which I think Clooney and Lopez had too, you know, and then Clooney had Julia Roberts in the Ocean's Eleven films is you get the sense that just everyone there is enjoying their own chemistry and being together. And so I felt enough of that. And then you get shots like that dinner scene where she's taken him out to meet her friends. And this is why the romance doesn't work, right? It's just so yeah. different worlds, her right. super elite friends for dinner. But I like how Soderbergh punctuates that and almost admits it. And in the middle of this banal conversation, we get two close-ups. And the gorgeous, I mean, if you're a Hollywood actor and you're not immediately trying to sign up for some Soderbergh film in this vein, I don't know what you're doing because the way Tatum looks and the way Hayek looks in those close-ups where it's almost, I think they might, maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but they're, they might each give a different lighting scheme, a different color to their face, mm -hmm. or maybe it's the same. I'm picturing like a greenish turquoise. There's sure. so much colored lighting. Yeah, yeah, there's so much colored lighting in this film that is just beautiful. And he puts these stars on display 
they step up to the plate by giving performances, joint performance together that meets the aesthetic elements. And that carried me through quite a bit of it. In addition to, I think, you know, it it isn't going to make our list, spoiler, but I think that sequence at the end where Mike has worked with a ballerina Mm -hmm. to come up with this number that, again, communicates his deep love for Max, which is maybe not what I buy there. It's why it's not one of my top five scenes. It doesn't emotionally work as much as some of the others, but just the athleticism as this water is pouring on the stage and it becomes, it's almost like this, like an R-rated slip and slide is what we get on this stage. It's an incredible dance sequence that's distinct and apart from what we've seen elsewhere in the series. So, you know, I would probably say maybe I like it a little bit less than XXL, but I still think it's quite a bit of fun in the same vein. And there isn't that big of a gap between the two of them. I'm so bummed. I think it's actually my least favorite Soderbergh. Yeah, I my was, least, you know, you go to, you'll come to bat for Soderbergh, like, right. you know, dropping a camera on the floor for two hours. Yes, yeah, I don't, I don't actually feel that he's engaged here. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't feel the commitment from really any of the parties. I certainly don't feel it as much, even from Tatum and from Hayek Pinot as you do. And you said the ballerina sequence, you're right. That one with the ballerina, that dance, it's compelling visually and certainly physically, but it just doesn't pull off the storytelling and thematic work that the movie. I think that comes back to the script too. Right. It does. So you're saying that the dance itself, along with some other things helps balance that out or negate it a little bit. And I'm saying all it does for me is make me even more aware of what it's not accomplishing. And that's true. Even of the close-ups you mentioned at dinner, absolutely gorgeous, but you feel Soderbergh striving to punctuate that scene with something so he can give us some cookie crumbs so we can actually latch on to some real feelings between them because otherwise I wasn't feeling them. So I would, I would just say going to bat for my beloved. I know you love it too, but put some respect on Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney's names. They're just, oh, yeah, it's his best film. It's by they're far just, his best yeah, film because everything there's is not working, a fraction of the heat here. Everything's working on all cylinders. Yeah. Yeah. The, the comparison for me is in terms of the chemistry and the, the use of glamour stars in the right way. Um, I would say, and even, you know, for me, those close-ups at the dinner scene, what they're communicating there is there's still a connection between them. There's a heat, there's a recognition. I don't want to push this too far, but I think what, you know, as I was setting this up with some notes, Sam gave us, you know, I think what it is pointing to, there's a creative resonance, renaissance. They both feel as characters within this project that I did buy into. And I think that is what's going on at that table dinner scene as well. They're seeing each other as this is not his world because of these one percenter older people he's at dinner with. But he and her, they do have a shared world and it's the world of performers. And I think that is what they're connecting with in that moment. And there is narrative, a narrative and emotional point there. I don't think it goes as far as the love story that the movie does eventually. I think that's where I would agree with you. Yeah. And for me... I would say you're right that the movie also wants us to buy into that sense of a creative renaissance for both of them. But the scenes that it gives us, especially all of those kind of useless montages that you, again, feel like the movie needs to try to do some extra work that the screenplay and the story otherwise aren't doing. I never got the sense, Josh, when they're interacting with each other and they're supposed to be helping to fulfill each other creatively. I didn't buy it. 
And if you don't buy that, then there's not much to latch on to with this film. I actually had some hope once we got to the Edna Eaglebauer scene, the caper. And I'll say that just for people who do see this movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because it was almost like Soderbergh decided to make Ocean's 14 in the middle of a Magic Mike movie. You got a big crew with a target yeah, and an only objective. They're, they're male strippers instead of con men. Exactly. And they have to put on this whole charade. And in seconds, it's over. And her response isn't remotely believable. And it's just like, why did we even bother? For the bus sequence, when they're all on the bus it's not worth doing it. the choreographed it's not worth routine. It. Yeah, not worth it. <laughs> you don't want to see Ocean's Eleven as a as a dance sequence? I mean, come Maybe on. I do. It was over too quickly. Oh, that's, okay. <laughs> that's my complaint, Josh. It needed... A little bit more. This movie needed a lot more. Magic Mike's Last Dance is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's get back to us agreeing on Soderbergh and our favorite Magic Mike moments. We have two more and you're up. Yeah. And this one we both feel says a lot about character. I think it comes from Magic Mike. And I'm calling it the dance of defiance. So this is a moment after Mike and Matthew McConaughey's Dallas have had their first real confrontation. Mike has been asking for more equity in the business. Here he he demands that Dallas steps up to the plate, keeps his word. Dallas brushes him off again and in, in kind of a firm way at this point. Like it's, it's become clear to Mike, this isn't going to happen. And then Dallas challenges him, you know, come up with some fresh routines, tries to insult him. So next night, I think it is at the club or a few nights later, Dallas does the opposite and he demands Mike do his sailor act, you know, the tried and true, but instead he comes out with this angry, almost techno number. Uh, he's wearing, he's clad in black. It, it looks like he's wearing military gear possibly. And as I was hinting at before, this is the scene where there's not a lot of joy here. There, there is absolute anger, frustration. It starts with him spinning insanely from a handle in the ceiling and you get the sense that's him shaking off everything in his life that's been going wrong before he just indulges in this few moments of physical escape so the dancing is impressive of course, but I really do like this number for how instrumental it is in terms of character and narrative. Mike doesn't really decide to ditch Dallas for sure for a little bit yet in the movie, in the narrative, but I get the sense that this is maybe that crucial moment of decision. And I love how it comes to him, it comes to Mike appropriately while in movement. It's like, this is where he finds clarity. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the dance of defiance. Yeah, it's great. And that is the one through line, I would say, Again, it's not there sufficiently in Magic Mike's Last Dance, but there are three very different films for all they have in common. The one through line is this idea of asserting your individuality, but also being part of a collective. All the good and the bad that comes with both of those things, as you noted, setting up Magic Mike's Last Dance, all he wants in the first movie is to break out on his own. And to not have to be part of this anymore. And then by the time, and we'll touch on this a bit more in a second, by the time we get to the second film, it's like, oh, be careful what you wish for. Maybe, maybe I had it pretty good. And that was actually something not to belabor it, but that sense of camaraderie was something I also felt was missing from Last Dance. It kind of killed me to only see the other guys on Zoom. <laughs> Yeah, for a few short minutes. I agree you know? with that. I needed the gang. I really wanted the gang there. So that conflict of 
individuality versus the collective is something that Soderbergh and his collaborators playing with through these films. Okay, our number one Magic Mike moment, and surely our listeners expect it, Josh. We already mentioned Pony, but what about the Pony reprise from Magic Mike XXL? As I just said, it so effectively sets up the whole movie because it's going to be about this clash. It's going to be about him realizing that maybe there's something about this life that he's still clinging to. Maybe there's something about not being out on his own that he actually needs, and he misses these guys. Maybe even that part of his life, the carpentry that he thought was going to be so fulfilling, isn't doing it for him, and he's not getting the creative fulfillment that he perhaps took for granted, that he was getting out of performing. And a lesser filmmaker here, maybe not Soderbergh or Gregory Jacobs here directing this film, would have expressed it another way, maybe with dialogue, maybe a little bit on the nose, just had the character come out and say what they were feeling. Here, it's a Magic Mike movie. You got Channing Tatum. We really need to watch him express it the way he was meant to, which is physically, which is through movement. And not only do we get that as he's doing some work, he's in his garage, he's got all those tools out. You're listening to the golden age of hip hop, only on Spotify. And the song comes on. It tells us that not only is he maybe missing those things, is he maybe needing some more creative fulfillment, it also tells us he's still got it. That he hasn't been on stage in a while, but when we watch him move, the moment we see him start to move, we know that he could fall back into being Magic Mike if he's ready to. I wonder, too, watching it again today, if there's meant to be a little bit of a a joke at his expense, at the character's expense, when Pony the song is being set up by the DJ on the radio, they refer to the golden age of hip-hop. It's as if the DJ is kind of saying, hey, you know, you might be past your prime a little and taunting him. Do you still got it? And we see that he does. I love the slow tilt up of his welder's mask when the music starts, the recognition. Uh That's hilarious. The head shake. And even, of course, if you watch it, you realize that the whole point is that he's not on stage. He's no longer a dancer on a stage, but even playing the welder playing the carpenter. Those are roles that he could be playing on stage someday, right? That's a a character that he is perhaps inhabiting or he could inhabit. And watching the sense of humor Tatum brings to that scene, laughing at himself like, am I really going to do this? And then commits. He commits fully to it. And we see all the moves come out. The improvisation is really what's so electric about it. Using the whole workspace, it's unique in a way for this series, as I recall. It also reminds me of a dance sequence out of a classic Hollywood musical where a character just breaks into song or breaks into dance, utilizing the tools here, literally utilizing all the tools and your surroundings and putting on the best show you can. Well, what a great way to start a sequel, right? I mean, just so knowing, self-aware, Yet moving the story and the narrative forward. That's it. It's, yeah, it's just so smart. And you talk about this, you know, wearing that welder's mask and 
even though that's on, we are, we can see the smile. We know the smile mm-hmm. because of the subtle head movements, right? And because we've, this is the second film, we know him as a performer, but also as a character. Like we get a sense of how Mike Lane is going to react in this moment. And it's going to be exactly like mm-hmm. this. He's going to seize the moment. And how about the choreography of just, you know, sharpening whatever tool that is to the beat? So good. And the sparks. Well, that's, that's kind of the slow burn or the <laughs> the slow commit, right? Where when you first see him use that tool, you're like, is he is he in? Is he going to start performing or not? And then you see, oh, no, he's completely yeah. in rhythm. Yep. He's, he's in. He's doing it. And to your point about the audience, too, it's also, yes, he enjoys the audience. Part of the reason he did that was for the audience. Doesn't need an audience necessarily, yeah. right? There's, no. there's just a pure love for... Mm-hmm the music and the movement as well. And so I like how this scene gives us a peek at that element as well. There's just some sly humor going on here, which is in a different range of what we'll get later in the film with that convenience store scene, which is much broader and bigger humor. And I just think this one, I I like this at number one, because I think it's like the series best moments. It does. It celebrates music. It celebrates Mm -hmm. movement and it celebrates physical talent and it does it with cleverness and wit. So it's a good number one. Those are our top five Magicist Mike moments. You can view our complete list, all of our top five lists. You can see the clips, all the dance sequences we just described and praised at filmspotting.net slash lists. That's our show, Josh. Let's let's go do some work in the garage. Got some carpentry to do. All right. Sounds good. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which has us looking 50 years back to the 1973 movie year. We're asking you, what is the best film of 1973? For show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as $5 a month. You can listen to the show early and ad-free, plus a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. We are planning... February's bonus show now. Actually, we got to tape that next week, Josh. We gave our family members a vote. We picked some 60s blind spots, and it looks like we're going to do a little blind cow spotting. That's where I know we've got at least one sacred cow, and it's a movie. Well, they're both potentially sacred cows, and we've each seen one of them, Westerns. I'm going to finally get to rectify a Paul Newman blind spot, HUD. You're going to get to rectify a big Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne blind spot, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Some final prep for Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 60s. We'll talk about those exclusively for our family members. I cannot wait. That's official. The vote is uh, pretty clear, huh? Yeah, it still is open for our family members who haven't voted, but it seems like the Westerns are running away with it. Nice. From our archive which you have access to potentially as a film spotting family member, some related shows to this one, episode 403 going way back magic. Mike, the first magic Mike discussed on the show, even further back 364. We did our top five Steven Soderbergh scenes before that 241. I sat down with the man. I talked to Steven Soderbergh upon the release of Che. I'm pretty sure it was Che part one, though it might've been Che part two Really good, insightful 30-minute conversation with Steven Soderbergh. And if you're looking for reviews of other Soderbergh films, we have many from Kimmy, 861, all the way back to 
the first Soderbergh film discussed on the show was episode 73. We talked about his experimental bubble. Filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see Of an Age, a 90s set Australian romance. In limited release and on VOD, recommended by me, The Integrity of Joseph Chambers, starring Clay Crawford. In wide release, kind of recommended by you, Josh. Big thumbs up for the slug horses. Big thumbs up for the slug horses in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Next week, we will share our top five films of 1973. And I think it starts. Let the madness begin. The play and round of the best of the 60s. It's coming your way. Get your homework done. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.